0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com.
1: From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. Protests across the country continue after the murder of George Floyd. Now all four officers involved in his death face charges.
2: No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace.
1: A memorial for George Floyd, Reverend Al Sharpton led a moment of silence, eight minutes, 46 seconds, for the time the officer kept his knee on Floyd's neck.
2: What happened to Floyd happens every
3: day in this country, in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us
2: to stand up in George's name and say, Get your knee
0: off our necks.
1: And on Monday, President Trump addressed the nation. He said he was prepared to deploy the military to address the violence and unrest.
0: We are
3: ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country.
1: We will end it now. It's our Week in the News roundtable, and we do have a great panel to break it all down for us today. Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR, covering national political news from Washington, D.C. Kimberly, welcome. Hi there Jane. Adam Sirwer, he's staff writer at the Atlantic. Hello Adam.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: And from Hanover, New Hampshire, on Point News Analyst Jack Beatty. Jack, great to have you with us.
3: Hello Jane, Adam, and Kim.
1: So, let me begin with the memorial service for George Floyd yesterday, a service that mourned a man whose death has inspired a movement. Kimberly, I'll start with you, a powerful moment that moment of silence we heard from the Reverend Al Sharpton there. Tell us about the memorial.
2: Yes, and, and that moment of silence, I, I know watching and contemplating during that time, it felt like such an eternity. And I feel that for so many reasons, uh, for so many people, that really brought home the idea uh, of how George Floyd died, uh, and the level of, of brutality that was involved with somebody, someone who could kneel on another human being for that eternally long period of time. And Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, d- did that and it was right after he spoke about the proverbial knee on one's neck. Throughout history, uh, that has been a symbol uh, that Black people have used to describe not just uh, violence to get violence against them, but an inability to access economic equality, educational equality, criminal justice equality um, a- a- in so many different ways. A- and to have that to have been the symbol for this, um, it-, it just really it brought it home in a poetic way. Mm-hmm. It was really a-, a moment not just to mourn uh, George Floyd. We heard from his family who, who talked about uh, things growing up with him and what he was like, but a way for a nation to mourn where we are uh, as a country, where things like this, these sort of slings at the hands of police and at the hands of people who act as police are still happening.
1: This was the first of several memorials for George Floyd in the coming days across the country. Uh, Well, murder charges were filed this week against all four officers in George Floyd's death. An upgraded second-degree murder charge against Derek Chauvin, the former police officer who pinned Floyd to the ground by his neck. And three other officers at the scene are now charged with aiding and abetting the killing. They were in court yesterday. And two of the former police officers turned on Derek Chauvin, the, the senior officer. So it's very clear that these officers will not be presenting a united front. Kimberly, tell us what happened in their court appearance yesterday.
2: Well, I think what we're going to see as this moves forward, uh, there are a lot of questions that need to be answered, how these uh, officers are tried, who will testify against each other. It seems that it's not going to be one simple trial. But I think what uh, the people in Minneapolis and across the country are going to be watching now is what justice looks like so frequently in these cases where you have a a police officer, uh, an, um, an unarmed black person who dies at the hands of a police officer, if there is a, an arrest, there tends not to be a conviction. And that is one reason that we have seen the frustration and anger that has led to these protests. So I think the way this case is handled... The the fact that it took so long to charge all four officers alone has been a point of frustration. So I think people are going to be watching very carefully how this trial uh, moves forward, how these proceedings move forward. And that's something that
1: seems like justice come out as a result. So, Derek Chauvin now has a second degree murder uh, charge, as well as the third degree manslaughter charge. Uh, these charges carry decades, decades of prison time. Uh, Minnesota's uh, governor announced that the state attorney general would take over this case from the Hennepin County attorney general. And here he is, the Minnesota attorney general, Keith Ellison, holding a press conference on Wednesday to announce these upgraded charges against Derek Chauvin.
0: George
4: Floyd mattered. He was loved. His family was important, his life had value, and we will seek justice for him and for you, and we will find it. The very fact that we have filed these charges means that we believe in them. But what I do not believe is that one successful prosecution can rectify the hurt and loss that so many people feel.
1: Ellison seemed to be uh, lowering expectations this week a bit. Jack Beatty, he said himself, it's hard to convict the police, and these upgraded charges may be even more difficult for him. Jack.
3: Yes, I've heard that, uh, and people, you know, as as it's come out here, where it's a it's a national learning opportunity, we've found out about the limited immunity to prosecution that policemen have, and it seems they all they have to do is in, in trials to say. I was in fear of my life, and juries say, "Well, that's enough for me," and vote to acquit. So that's a, but it's hard to see in that video how that could plausibly, in any, in any sane reckoning, be a claim that that Officer Chauvin could make. You know, uh, I'm so glad that uh, General um, <coughs> Allison is taking this on because you have to wonder. Suppose this had been done at the start, uh, the Hennepin County uh, District Attorney. Even you know suppose he had had they had indicted these people right out of the the, the bat, would that have uh, tamped down some of this mm. uh, response one doesn 't know, but it was telling that that he, a, a week ago uh, when that district attorney spoke, he said that perhaps even the charges against uh, Chauvin would have to be that there was there was some mitigating evidence in there, words to that effect. Just the wrong note entirely. And I think the governor acting uh, rightly, perhaps has acted lately in in putting uh, uh, General Ellison in charge.
1: CBS News reported last night that uh, Derek Chauvin worked as a security guard at the same nightclub as George Floyd and that. Possibly he may have known him and that this may have been personal in some way. Kimberly Atkins, uh, George Floyd's brother, believes this was a, a premeditated act. That's what he said. And the family is pushing for a first degree murder charge. You're an attorney. What about these charges, these upgraded charges?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, as for the charges themselves, the one problem with the third initial third degree murder uh, charge was that... It, the elements of it, the technical elements of the crime did not really fit the facts of the case. And when you have a, a situation like that, it is very easy for those charges to be dropped on a technical matter. Generally speaking, when someone is charged, they're charged with the highest crime and then it's a matter of uh, either giving a jury the option to uh, convict of that or of a lesser included charge or of uh, the defendant and the prosecutor agreeing to some sort of plea deal to a lesser uh, charge. It doesn't Tend not to go the other way around. You don't get charged up right. uh, unless there's a change in fact. So, so that's an important symbol there. Look, look. I don't know whether that we. I don't know whether they knew each other. There was the reporting that they did both work as security in the same place. I know from my experience there are times that I see people at work or I know them and in a different setting when they see me, particularly when it's not another person of color, they don't always recognize me. So I don't know in that moment whether uh, Officer Chauvin recognized him or not. But either way, I mean, it seems very difficult that that uh, would it, it may make it worse, but I don't think it makes it any better.
1: Two different autopsy reports uh, this week on George Floyd. Both conclude the death was a homicide, but they differ on what caused it. The medical examiner said it was cardiopulmonary arrest. The Floyd family's independent autopsy said it was asphy- asphyxiation from sustained Pressure, um, Adam. Did you cover this? Are, the, are there discrepancies in this report?
4: Well, obviously, there's a there's a discrepancy between what the medical examiner said and what the private, uh, the the independent medical examiner said. But I mean, I, I think it's going to be very hard for uh, the defense for defense attorneys to argue that Chauvin wasn't responsible for. Uh, for Floyd's death under these circumstances, given the video, given what we saw, given the nature of the restraint um, and the fact that it's dangerous, uh, I think that the real issue um, with all of these kinds of prosecutions is that juries really tend to give cops the benefit of the doubt, and they really give them the benefit of the doubt um, when the person, when the victim is a black man. Um, so I think you know it, it's really hard to tell. Um, you know, whether it's going to make a difference in terms of uh, what the verdict ultimately is.
1: Kimberly Atkins, what struck you about the protests? Uh, ten days straight, ten days of protests this week in this country. Um, many of them, uh, you know, uh, riotous, some of them more peaceful. Um, have you noticed tens- tensions easing? What are you noticing? What are you seeing now out there as you look at these protests? Well, it seems as each day goes by,
2: you uh, that the protests have gotten more peaceful. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think it's one, the organizers and participants in the protesters have been doing their part to try to put down, uh, the, the instances of outside agitators coming in, uh, and seeing, uh, trying to escalate the situation, saying, no, this is not, we're, this is not, we're not here to break windows and set things on fire. We're here to demand justice. And I think we've seen some of that. I think we've seen some cities uh, react to what is happening uh, on the ground. We saw lots of curfews going into place, for example, and it seemed night after night, once the curfew fell, it, it gave police an opportunity to try to enforce the curfew. And in the course of that, there was a, a conflict where we saw many videos of police officers using excessive force against the protesters. And then mayors began lifting or delaying those curfews curfews. And we saw fewer instances of that. But and also we saw a very diverse crowd of people. That's it's right. broad pro- protests happening all over the world. So I think all of those uh, are, are remarkable.
1: It is the week in the news. Uh, when we come back after the break, we'll talk about President Trump's walk to St. John's Church this week and military leaders breaking with the president. I'm Jane Clayson. this is On Point. More to come. We'll be right back.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint On Point. That's Indeed.com onpoint On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah.
3: Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash,
4: or deceiving themselves.
0: Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Jane
1: Clayson. We're discussing the week in the news this hour, and we have a great panel to guide us through the week. is Kimberly Atkins, Adam Serwer from The Atlantic, and On Point news analyst Jack Beattie. Uh, Several incidents this week worth noting related to the protests around the country in Louisville, the police chief was fired when two officers involved in the fatal shooting of a black business owner uh, did not activate their body camps. Uh, in Atlanta, six officers charged after pulling two young people from their cars and shooting them with stun guns while they were stuck in traffic caused by the protest. Another video that was hard to watch. The couple appeared on CNN on Wednesday to talk about both the physical and the mental toll of the encounter. Here's one of the victims, Tanya Pilgrim.
2: When something so devastating happens, when there's no preparation, there's, you know, no explanation, there's really, there's almost no way to get over it.
4: All, like, all
2: we, like, all I can hope for is, like I said, is for people to be held accountable, like, because I don't want this to continue to happen and have more victims like us who are traumatized, who can't sleep, can't eat. I don't want that for anyone else.
1: Back in Washington, uh, security personnel, including members of the National Guard, used tear gas and rubber bullets on peaceful protesters to forcibly and violently clear a path for President Trump to walk across the street to St. John's Church, where the president then held up a Bible. Adam Serwer, can you speak to this? Describe the scene for us.
4: Well, there was an initial attempt to say that the protesters hadn't been cleared for that reason or that uh, tear gas hadn't been used. And obviously, we now know that's not the case. But look, it's really ridiculous. I mean, the the government clearing, violently clearing peaceful protesters for the purpose of granting the president a photo op is just an obvious uh, and blatant suppression of free speech. Uh, And it it just shouldn't shouldn't have happened. And the fact that uh the 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 fact that the president and attorney general even felt comfortable doing that the way that they did it uh is just really outrageous
1: so earlier in the day the president had briefly retreated to a bunker uh beneath the white house and several reports indicated that mr trump did not want to appear that he was in hiding so he went out uh gave a speech in the rose garden here's a bit of that speech on monday from the white house rose garden
3: as we speak I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property.
1: And so, in in that moment, Kimberly Atkins, tear gas, rubber bullets uh, being fired on these peaceful protesters. What did you see in this spectacle? Yeah,
2: it served it served as an inflection point in a lot of ways. Yes, the reporting is that this happened in part because the president was, frankly, embarrassed by reports that he uh, had been rushed into uh, a bunker. He had tweeted before that he felt safe. A- and this was some sort of show that the president can walk out uh, of of the front of the White House uh, and walk out. And he was not afraid. And it took the clearing uh, of Lafayette Park of peaceful protesters um, In order to effectuate that, that was reportedly the decision made by Attorney General Barr. Um, And so and to boot, there was a nice slick White House video that was put out uh, a little while later. Yeah. Uh, of the president doing this. So clearly this was meant to, to be, it was referred to as a photo op and it appeared very much that that is what it was. But it was accompanied by this call for the militarized response of local police against protesters. And that was a main part of the point. Uh, the president not only held up this Bible in a way that seemed a signal to his white evangelical uh, supporters, but also promoting this law and order uh, approach that he thought was necessary. He had ex- excoriated Governors in a phone call um, hours earlier saying that they looked weak because they weren't putting down these protests with more force. So it was a clear uh, line that the president was drawing yeah. in how he thought that these these protests should
1: be addressed. Jack Beattie, as Kimberly said, it's been reported that uh, A.G. Barr, Bill Barr, ordered this use of force, this tactical intervention to clear this path for the president. Um, Barr called the protesters a witch 's brew of extremist agitators. Tell me what you saw this week
3: well i didn 't see that in that in that group. I watched uh, a good deal of uh, of the period before that on CNN and as the commentators as the reporters uh, uh, asserted, it was a peaceful uh, assemblage. people exercising their right uh, of free speech to petition the government for redress of in this case this, a horrible grievance, um, and and the attorney general's almost willful, it strikes me, misreading, which doesn't seem to—and and earlier he'd, he'd come out with uh, rhetoric about Antifa, which is a kind of uh, conspiracy, I guess. People say it almost doesn't exist. It's such a loose assemblage of personages. But in, the point is, in the arrests, you don't see that. The arrests around the country are— almost not all of them but a uh, the large percentage local people and uh, yes I have no doubt there have been some agitators but this is uh, uh, on the part of the Attorney General I think this is just a kind of shameful moment it, it shouldn't it shouldn't escape our notice uh, Jane that uh, before the president made his speech about you know law and order he spoke on on the phone with Vladimir Putin uh, and when he told when he told the governors that uh, the whole world is laughing at you, you're a laughingstock in the world. I wonder if he wasn't just reflecting what Mr. Putin had told him. And I, I don't think that'll escape the notice of uh, of historians. Mm.
1: Bishop uh, Marianne Edgar Buddy uh, leads the Episcopal Diocese in Washington. She told CNN that clergy were not alerted ahead of time about the president's plans to come and visit St. John's on Monday after it had been vandalized in protests.
0: Let me be clear about it. He did not come to pray. He did not come to express uh, remorse or consolation. He did not come to share the grief or to provide hope to the thousands of young people who were gathered um, in the park that day. um, He did nothing to say to them that your future is before you and I will protect you and do all that we can to make this country worthy of you. All the things that we need and deserve from anyone who is in leadership, spiritual or political, at this time.
1: Actually, a chorus of religious leaders have expressed dismay at what happened at St. John's, Adam Server.
4: Well, that, that's not surprising. Uh, I think in, in the same way that you saw a lot of military leaders speaking out because they don't want the military to be politicized, I think people don't, do uh, clergy do not like the idea of uh, churches and other houses of worship being used in such a cynical political manner. Uh, and I think that in this case, it was so obviously cynical, so obviously an attempt by the president to um, you know, show everybody that he, he, he's actually a big, strong man and he wasn't hiding in a bunker somewhere, uh, that it's not surprising that there are so many people who responded negatively to it.
1: So, speaking of the military being politicized, uh, the, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, General Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, were apparently paraded into this photo op in front of the church, though they said they did not know in advance about the, the crowd being dispersed. They didn't know, uh, sort of exactly what was happening. They, they thought they were going to review the troops, which makes this even more bizarre, Kimberly. Uh, It it
2: does. I mean, it was, what a remarkable moment. It it speaks not only to the complete lack of coordination and communication from within this administration, uh, but it it just shows how the the political maneuvering by the president uh, can catch up everyone, including the the national, uh, including the Secretary of Defense. And uh, this became another inflection moment for the military, which caused uh, uh, General Esper to later say that Secretary Esper to say that he did not agree with uh, using military force against American citizens, a sentiment that was uh, then echoed uh, by uh, Mike Mullen, the former uh, chair of the chiefs of staff and former uh, defense secretary James Mattis, who put out a statement uh, saying that the president uh, is is it's keen on fomenting a uh, division and not bringing the country together. And that it was the first president uh, that he has seen to act in that way. So it, it, look, it's not the first time we've seen the president politicize the military, recall that he uh, barred transgender troops by a tweet and, and uh, that the White House wanted the uh, SS John McCain removed from his site during his visit to Japan. But in this case, this order to uh, have the military go into cities and states was, was a bridge too far for uh, many of the, the military's top brass.
1: Here's the clip uh, to which you refer, Kimberly. Here's Secretary of Defense Esper breaking with President Trump on Wednesday uh, when he said he does not support using military force against protesters. He invoked not only his role as the Department of Defense secretary, but his career as a soldier and a former member of the National Guard.
4: The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act.
1: Jack Beatty, there were real questions, actually, about whether the Secretary of Defense was going to hold his job after contradicting the president on this. Um, And, you know, one of several military leaders who did, Jack.
3: Yes, uh, and uh, the, the, to call it tepid, <laughs> the White House endorsement. I think uh, the press secretary said, "Well, he still has his job, or something, something like that." If the president didn't like him, he wouldn't be in the job. You know, uh, on this program, uh, commentators regularly and rightly criticize the. The acquiescence of Republican senators and, and congressmen in the president 's worst moments, not so this week. I think we need to say that senators sass Murkowski Colin scott Graham, Congressman Heard, and others have spoken out against this, and I think that 's worthy of of remark because it 's hard to do uh, for them, um, especially those of them that are on the ballot. And uh, that that may go to Kimberly's point that this was a, an, inf- quote, inflection point. Something might have changed with this opera buffet display, this authoritarian assertion, this override of constitutional rights, all for a photo op. Maybe something uh, is 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 changing, and I and I think these uh, GOP senators speak to that.
1: In fact, uh, Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska senator, said she was struggling with her support of Donald Trump. Now, whether she can actually vote for him, she said, "We've reached a point where quote we can be honest with the concerns we hold internally about the president." That is a shift, Adam. Serwer, for for Murkowski and and for others, it appears.
4: I mean, it it is a shift, um, but I don't want to overplay it. Look, when when the Access Hollywood tape came out with a recording of the president discussing uh, the fact that he engages in sexual assault, a lot of Republicans uh, pulled back and said, oh, I don't know if I can support this guy because they thought he was going to lose. And then when the Comey letter came out, Uh, you know, all these Republicans, they fell in line immediately as soon as the president won. So what's happening here is that the president's polling is bad. It looks like he might lose. And so people are feeling a little brave. But if Trump somehow bounces back and pulls through, you're going to see all these same people fall right back in line.
1: Let me get to uh, Kimberly. You brought up General Mattis. Um, He took issue and this was an extraordinary um, rebuke. Uh, extraordinary criticism. General Mattis said that uh, President Trump's threat of military force during the riots. um, We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership, that the president is trying to divide the country. Uh, He's a threat to the Constitution. I mean, just an extraordinary back and forth between these current and former Pentagon officials, Kim.
2: Yes. And, and on one hand, uh, it is remarkable. Secretary Mattis said uh, when he left the job uh, that he uh, planned to maintain what he saw as a duty of silence, not speaking out against an administration uh, for which uh, he worked uh, once he left. Um, and, and now clearly he is making a different calculation, although we, we did see that very critical uh, resignation letter. When he did leave office, he was very critical of the president. uh And uh, his view of the world. But on the other hand, you have to recall that for all of those other instances that the president uh, politicized the military that I named, uh, General Mattis was at the helm then. And he had the opportunity to to do things from the inside to to be more effective uh, from within the Pentagon, uh, rather than now speaking now that he is left. So I I think there are two ways to look at uh, what what General Mattis is doing now.
1: Let me get to the phone call that President Trump had uh, with governors um, to, to talk about how to handle the protests happening across the country. Here's what President Trump said to the governors on Monday. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a
0: budget jerk. You have to dominate. And you have to arrest people and you have to try people and they have to go to jail for long periods of time.
1: If you don't dominate, you're going to look like a bunch of jerks. Adam Serwer, uh, the response uh, to that, specifically from the governors, if you know?
4: Uh, Well, I mean, obviously, you can see that none of the governors requested... you know, requested that the president send out the troops to dominate uh, the protesters because they recognize that these people are their citizens. The president is only thinking of this, of these protests in terms of the fact that they make him look bad because he ran on law and order and now everything looks like chaos. But most of the nation's governors do not actually want to unleash brutality on their own citizens. And the president's appetite for that is actually quite disturbing.
1: Jack, what did you hear in that call?
4: Oh, I I
3: entirely agree with Adam. I mean, it, what could be more disturbing than to hear a president talk like that and almost seem to relish, not only to you know, polarize but to relish violence? Earlier in a tweet, he spoke of you know, trespassers in the White House grounds will be met with vicious dogs. Almost, almost, you know, t- titillating himself with these images of of violence. There's a streak in this man that is. Um, profoundly disturbing on just the moral uh, moral and psychological level I think
1: mm-hmm. I can't let this uh, segment go without um, speaking about Ahmad Arbery, because this week we learned more about the final moments of his life, the young African-American man who was shot and killed while jogging in Georgia at a court hearing uh, for the the three men charged with murdering Arbery. Prosecutors stunned the courtroom with uh, the information that one of the suspects called Arbery a racial epithet. After allegedly shooting him, Uh, Kim Atkins, the Department of Justice now looking at federal hate crimes uh, in this case, charges in this case, just just a terrible uh, addition to this already awful story. It really is. And
2: um, the federal hate crime charges are among the hardest to bring and make and make stick. Um, but I can't imagine a case that seems to warrant it more than this one. I think uh, the the killing of Ahmad Arbery, uh, the the images of that is a large, uh, a big part of why the protests we are seeing, uh, in the wake of George Floyd's ki- killing, has been so big. It was really a, a one two punch for Black Americans to see those slayings take place on the streets of America, and uh, the Justice Department. Um, I, I hope we'll take a very close look at that.:
1: More of our weekly news roundtable. After the break, uh, we'll talk about the pandemic. New numbers show that 16 states have increased COVID cases. We'll speak about that and more. I'm Jane Clayson, this is on point. We'll be right back.:
0: Did you kill Marlene Johnson?
1: This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. On Monday, we'll hear from a panel of organizers who are protesting racism and police brutality in cities across this country. Have you taken part in demonstrations in your community? What, you've, what have you witnessed? What are you asking for? We'd love to hear your perspective. Tell us your story. one 353 Eight, three, Give us a call. Today, our weekly roundtable uh, continues and our panel this hour is Adam Serwer of The Atlantic, Kimberly Atkins with WBUR and On Point News Analyst Jack Beatty. Uh, Well, the Labor Department reported that uh, 1.9 million Americans filed new unemployment claims uh, last week. There were also 623,000 new claims for federal aid and self-employed Americans who are not normally eligible for state jobless claims. Uh, President Trump just held a press conference where he talked about the economy. He said, quote, this is a great moment um, for equality. Just prior to the China plague, we had the best numbers for African-Americans, for Hispanic-Americans, for everybody. We had the greatest economy in the history of the world, and that strength has helped get us through. Um, Speak to this moment, Adam Sir, those numbers. I mean, the economy is rebounding more quickly than than many expected.
4: I think that there is – well – it's certainly the case that people did not expect the numbers to be this good as a matter of fact. Uh, people were predicting that the, num- the unemployment numbers were going to go up. I think that, the, the uh, however, there were some people who suggested that we might have a temporary rebound like this. But the question is whether or not uh, we can actually sustain this given... Um, you know, given that the Congress is not inclined to make sure that the businesses and people who are currently laid off businesses that are shuttered and, and people who are currently laid off uh, get the money they need to keep uh, buying things, keep consuming, keep the economy going. Uh, so I think obviously the White House wants to take a victory lap here, but we're still very far from out of the woods and we don't know necessarily that we're on the right path.
1: Jack Beatty, what did you see in the economy this week?
4: Well, it, the president has a talking
3: point, and the stock market uh, rallied strongly this morning. Yes. Um, uh, but, but but I was struck with something in the data, something or like 700,000 jobs in government were lost. That's a portent. Unless Congress passes uh, aid to the states, I think uh, over $500 billion is what the Democrats in the House wanted. Uh, we're going to see a state, Employee, uh, that that seven hundred thousand number is going to grow and grow and grow. We're going to have mass layoffs in all the states because they have to balance their budgets, and that, of course, as economists warn, is a route to to sort of. Uh, keeping a recession going, essentially, you're 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 funding, you're 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 assuring the recession will have some legs because you're laying off so many public employees, and the the it, this moment may actually give the Republicans an excuse. Well, we don't need to do anymore. The economy is going to recover on its own, and that would be for them a political mistake because, of course, the more money out there, the the better the economy is going to do, the better the president will look. And it would be a terrible mistake for the millions of Americans who could continue to to struggle to find work.
1: Well, news regarding the pandemic this week, uh, there was some concern from health experts who say that the protests over the last 10 days in this country will certainly set off new chains of coronavirus infection. There are also new numbers out that show 16 states have increased COVID cases linked to Mother's Day and Memorial Day gatherings. Uh, Kimberly Atkins, uh, we've got more than 100,000 new cases worldwide uh, being reported each day. Give us an update on the pandemic in this country.
2: Yes. I mean, there have, there before these numbers came out, there was a worry about two things. One would be uh, a new spike in this current wave of coronavirus caused by warmer weather, people uh, going out, gathering, as you said, Mother's Day and other events, as well as a resurgence in the fall of a new wave. And certainly with these protests, uh, we have seen a lot of people, many wear masks, but many are very close together. They are not social distancing. We're seeing the law enforcement Uh, not social distancing in their response. But I I really do have to say that far away from the protests, as the weather has gotten warm, I have seen a lot of people really give up on social distancing. Perhaps it's not seeing Dr. Fauci on our TV screens every day reminding us, uh, has really made a lot of people, I think, back off of that. And as good as these job numbers are, as good as these indicators that uh, that that the economic hit really bottomed out somehow in May, unless you can sustain the numbers uh, of, of keep the new infection rates low, uh, you're not going to be able to is- sustain those economic numbers. So it'll take weeks to see what happens out of these protests and out of folks, you know, sitting close together, eating mm-hmm. outside at restaurants that I've seen. Uh, but, but the potential could be really devastating, not just for health, but also the economy.
1: Let's go back to the protests for a moment, because this week, former U.S. presidents spoke out about the death of George Floyd. Uh, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama all spoke up this week. It was George W. Bush's statement that was that was poignant. Uh, He said he was anguished by the video of Floyd's death, talked about ending systemic racism in this country. Adam Serwer, uh, what did you hear from the former presidents this week?
4: Uh, well, I think you, in some ways you you hear uh, what a rhetorical break uh, from previous presidents, regardless of party Trump is. Um, but also, I think it's important to remember that part of how Trump won was that he uh, wrote a backlash from law enforcement unions against Obama because his civil rights division had actually been very aggressive in engaging in oversight over uh, local uh, law enforcement institutions. And the largest police union in the country endorsed Trump. And Trump, of course, for a very long time has been sort of rhetor- rhetorically committed to police doing whatever they want to suspects from the time that he took out Uh, an ad suggesting that the now exonerated Central Park Five should be uh, given the death penalty to his president when he uh, told an audience of police that they could mistreat suspects. Um, But as a matter of policy, he is also pulled back entirely from the kind of oversight uh, that the Obama administration did of uh, local police departments. So in some ways when we're looking at this pro- these protests and why they are so widespread we actually don't have um, as much of a good idea as we should about what the po- what police practices uh, what the-, the practices of these uh, local police departments are and why people might be reacting to them in the way that they are.
1: back to the to the president's uh, speaking up this week former President Barack Obama gave a video address about George Floyd's killing from his home on Wednesday He called the events of this past week as profound as anything he has witnessed in his lifetime and said that protests and politics can work in tandem to affect real change. Here he is.
3: This is not a either or. This is a both and to bring about real change. We both have to highlight a problem and make people in power uncomfortable, but we also have to translate that into Practical solutions and laws that can be implemented and we can monitor and make sure uh, we're following up on.
1: President Obama urging Americans to make real change, real change over and over. He said that um, about, you know, what's happening right now. Jack Beatty, what did you hear there?
3: Well, importantly there, he, uh, he, he said, look at local uh, elections. And he pointed to uh, Ferguson, Missouri, which just elected Ella Jones, a black woman mayor. That's Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, and he said that, that sh- you've got to vote on the local issues. And one of those issues has is got to be now police reform. This week, Vox published some data about what could be a voting issue. For for citizens. And it it, it was a uh, sort of scored averaging of uh, police training and at, uh, across the nation, something like 60 um, percent, uh, uh, 60 hours of training for firearms and something like four hours of training for community relations. This is this is police. This is the average, apparently, in the country, something like that. And, you know, what should people vote on in their local elections? to change that, uh, those trainings for policemen. Let's have less firearms and more community relations. But that's a, a concrete demand that protesters and voters can make on local officials.
1: Well, in response to what has been happening over the last 10 days, Joe Biden gave his first major speech in public. Uh, since the coronavirus hit, uh, but directed his comments in Philadelphia to President Trump saying he was fanning the flames of hate, that he'd turned this country into a battlefield. Here he is on Tuesday in Philadelphia talking about racial tensions in this country and what he says is at stake in the upcoming election.
3: The moment has come for our nation to deal with systemic racism, to deal with the growing economic inequity that exists in our nation, to deal with with the denial of the promise of this nation, made to so many.
1: Kim Atkins, uh, did Joe Biden meet the moment here? What did you hear? Well, clearly, Joe Biden is
2: showing uh, one of the most clear distinctions that he has between the president in both style and substance when it comes to responding to this protest and the outrage uh, over the killing of unarmed black people. You have the president pushing for the military to go in and, and basically put down uh, this protest. And you have uh, former Vice President Biden uh, speaking to the pain and the hurt and the outrage at the pre- At the president's uh, response to this. And so, at a time when the coronavirus has taken the the presidential uh, election uh, off the air and and essentially still given the president uh, a, a a vehicle to speak every day, and Joe Biden hasn't been able to have that, that this was a moment that he got it. The speech was carried by networks, uh, which I think speaks to another issue. If you remember this time four years ago, uh, Donald Trump couldn't sneeze without getting wall-to-wall cable news coverage, and Joe Biden has not been given that same amount of coverage. So I think it's a push also to the media about how this election is being covered uh, at this critical time. Mm.
1: On Tuesday, uh, voters in seven states and the District of Columbia navigated curfews and health concerns and went to the polls, sometimes waiting in line for hours. Adam, sir, uh, with wins in seven states, Joe Biden is quickly closing in on this uh, nomination, Adam.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that there's any question but that uh, Biden's going to end up being the nominee. His main rival has dropped out. Um, I think, you know, the the challenge for him as as a nominee, I think, at this moment is that while he's polling really well, there appears to be some weakness with younger voters and with Hispanic voters. And that's something that his campaign is going to really have to deal with if they want to make sure they win in November. Mm
1: Speaking of November, uh, President Trump this week said that he's pulling the Republican National Convention from North Carolina because the governor there, Roy Cooper, who is a Democrat, uh, has refused to guarantee that uh, coronavirus restrictions would not impact the convention. Um, Kimberly Atkins, what did you hear this week in President Trump um, making this quite dramatic move?
2: Yes. I mean, it is a dramatic move, but it's right in line with President Trump's insistence that the comp- that the country open up. And he has this image of a- an RNC convention that looked like the one four years ago where there are lots of people in a packed stadium and, and the governor is saying, look, there's no way that this can happen. Uh, and so it's just yet another uh, example of this uh, divide, the way the president wants to see things go back to normal uh, and really put the coronavirus aside. But you have uh, governors who, by the way, are implementing the administration, the Trump administration's own guidelines from the CDC uh, about gatherings and how you carry things forward, uh, trying to enforce them and the president uh, pulling it rather than trying to find uh, some sort of middle ground. So mm. right now the, the convention doesn't have a home. We'll see if another city gives them one.
1: And do we know where where it might be, where that city might be?
2: As of the last time I checked, I don't. Uh, But yeah, it's going to be very difficult to see how the president can pull off the type of convention he's envisioning.
1: Well, uh, let's circle back as we end here uh, to where we began uh, with protests across this country. I wanted to play this clip. A Maryland singer named Kenny Sway led protesters in a sing-along of Bill Withers' hit Lean On Me this week. And I wanted to take a listen to these protesters singing together outside the White House. This was on Wednesday. So oh, just uh, an extraordinary moment, uh, one of many um, over these last 10 days. Uh, let me turn to the panel for your thoughts as we close this week of protests
4: and um, and
1: difficulty. Adam Sir, I'll start with you.
4: Um, well, I think, you know, we've seen something pretty extraordinary, which is, I think, the proliferation of... Uh cell phone cameras and the ability to record and provide a window for the rest of the country into uh, what are um, the all too common experiences between, for black people with law enforcement, I think has really changed uh, the political understanding of the extent of racism and discrimination in this country and how widespread it is and how much it really shapes people's lives. Uh, and I think that's something that's actually quite extraordinary, and I'm not sure that we've ever seen it before to this level.
1: Kimberly Atkins, thoughts on these protests as we close out here?
2: Yeah, you know, I think one thing that is not always in the conversation about why people are so angry, particularly people of color, uh, is the trauma. From seeing these images, it's impossible for black people to see uh, the video of of uh, men being killed in the street without thinking of uh, themselves or their brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children in the place of that. So I think that's one thing when uh, folks are just seeing this as... Uh, characterizing this as an excuse to make trouble or to damage property, um, what is really at the heart for so many of these protesters. And I think that's an important part of this conversation.
1: It sure is. Jack Beatty. I'll give you the last word. We have about a minute here.
3: Well, I give it to uh, a woman named Margaret Kawanka of Dorchester, Mass., quoted in the Boston Globe, an African-American woman. She said she was a protester. She said, we came out because it's finally clear that all people care like white people care. And she's drawing attention there to the biracial, multiracial character of this protest. And in this terrible moment for African-Americans – that, that solidarity that young um, white and other Americans feel with them, I hope that is a me- gives them a measure of assurance that this is going to change.
1: A week, a period in history never to be forgotten. Many thanks to our panel today, Kimberly Atkins, senior news correspondent for WBUR. Kimberly, thanks. Thank you, Jane. Adam a staff writer for The Atlantic. Thanks, Adam.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst. Great as always, Jack, to have you. Thanks.
4: Thank you,
3: Jane.
1: I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
2: Can Profit Motive Save the Planet is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance.
4: It sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down.
2: It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Henish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor
4: King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of
3: the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at IBMS.bu.edu.